Well, we come now finally to lesson six, our final lesson in this section of our study. We've been looking at the doctrine of creation. Lord willing, Pastor JP will take over next week and transition us into the doctrine of providence, which I am greatly looking forward to. We have looked at the ultimate purpose of creation and how it fits within the decrees of God. We have seen how our beliefs about creation are a matter of faith, with Scripture being the starting point of our understanding. We spoke about how creation was a free act of the triune God, that he was under no compulsion or necessity to create us, as if there was some deficiency or lack in his nature. And then we also looked at how creation was made out of nothing in the space of six ordinary days. Well, today we're going to consider, lastly, the creation of man. And of course, let me just remind you, there's a whole lot more that could have been said in this series, I realize. I mean, this is, you could spend a year on this stuff. Even just this topic today, we could spend multiple. But this is just an introduction. This is just to whet your appetite. Hopefully you're going home and you're thinking about these things. We're pointing you in the right direction. And you go home and study and reflect on these things on your own. And I certainly would encourage you to do that. Well, our confession tells us in chapter 4 of creation, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it. And yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change, beside this law written in their hearts, they received the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. You know, the creation of man is oftentimes called the crowning act of creation. It is when the creation week reaches its climax. And I think that's appropriate language because as we saw when discussing the eternal decree in the big scheme of things, this is all moving us towards the eternal Son of God, taking upon himself our nature to redeem a people, the elect. And so what we learn here is not only important for understanding ourselves and the effects that sin has had on us, but it's also important understanding the work and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what all this is setting us up for, that incarnation and the great work of salvation. Well, let's go to the source and read about the creation of man. In Genesis 1.26 states, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruits. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And then when we go on to chapter 2, we have not a different account of creation, as some suppose, but simply a more detailed explanation of what God did on day 6. 
And he tells us the following in verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then we go down to verse 18. And then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had made had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what are some few uh, points here to highlight? Again, we can't exhaust it, but let's just hit some highlights. Well, first consider how God created man. In the broader explanation given in chapter 1, we read that God made man, male, and female, then he blessed them, and all of this was done on the sixth day. And then we go into that more detailed account. In chapter 2, we read that the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. So the first thing to point out here is that there's absolutely no suggestion or hint at all that this creation of man involved any type of evolution whether it be natural or theistic, none whatsoever. We read that the creation of man was done by a direct act of God, and it all occurred within a single, ordinary day. It didn't take millions of years. It didn't even take a year. It all happened in one day. Further notice that God didn't take a fish or a monkey or a squirrel monkey or whatever mutant things people want to argue for, to form man out of that. Rather, he formed the body from the dust of the ground and then breathed into that body the breath of life, and man became a living being. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Recognize that theories like evolution are a direct attack on God and his word, and they should have zero place in our thinking. It is a lie that comes straight from the pit of hell. I don't care how many people are saying it. I don't care how much money they got backing them up. I don't care how sincere they think they are. I don't care if there's some of them that want to defend their profession of faith in the process. It doesn't matter. It's one of the biggest scams out there and directly contradicts the words of our creator here in Genesis. All that the lie of evolution is going to do, if you play around with it, is going to diminish your view of man and the special place that he has in this world. And listen, I know that sometimes we get accused, even as Reformed, of having already a pathetic, diminished view of man because we emphasize so much total depravity and his wickedness and so on. But remember, something happened between day six and where we are now. It's called the fall. There was a rebellion. And yes, that had major implications upon us and all the world. But none of that diminishes the special place that we have as humans in this world. 
Psalm 8 reads, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Raymond writes here, these verses should not be read as to infer the insignificance of man before the fathomless reaches of the heavenly universe. To the contrary, David, contemplating the magnificence of the heavens, is awed by the exalted status that God has bestowed upon man and expresses his awe by the breathless question of verse 4. David's inspired commentary here on Genesis 1 and 2 even suggests that God views man as his crowning act of creation, end quote. And beloved, evolution destroys all that. It does away with all of it. Well, as we move on, we see not only that the creation of man is a direct act of God, it doesn't involve millions of years or any type of evolution, but we also learn here, learn here as well as, as to what makes man, man. Notice again in, in chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Here we have the basis for understanding the makeup of man in what we call a dichotomous view of man. Now, as you might imagine, just with about anything else that we study in Scripture, there's going to be debates and disagreements. And it's just as true here. Some have argued that man is made up of three elements, body, soul, and spirit. This is called the trichotomous view, and in, at least in my experience, seems very, very popular with Baptists, especially dispensationalists. Others have argued that there are only two elements, body and soul. This is what we call dichotomy. And then there are some who say, well, the whole, the whole discussion is fruitless. Why are we even arguing this? The Bible doesn't make those clear distinctions. Well, I certainly don't agree with that latter. I do think we have a, a, a number of statements in Scripture from which we can infer clear distinctions between these different elements to man's nature. But at the same time, I don't believe trichotomy is correct. And we don't have time to get into all the reasons why. But understand that having such a view creates further problems down the road. As Raymond points out, this erroneous trichotomous view has been made the base for the espousal of other erroneous views, both in Christology with Apollinarianism and in the area of sanctification. That is this view that the Christian spirit is regenerated, his soul remains unregenerate, and that it is this condition which accounts for the struggle within him to live either righteously or unrighteously. So on the whole, in response to all this, it has been mainly the confessional reform position that man is dichotomy. That is, there are two ontologically distinct entities that make up man. The material body and the immaterial soul or spirit. These two entities, writes Raymond, are in a mysterious vital union and interact with what Burkhoff calls the union of life. In other words, he is neither pure matter alone nor pure spirit alone, but a wonderful duality and unity and unity and duality. And of course, the main verse we see this expressed in is what we've just read in Genesis 2-7. Notice, man does not become a living creature after God forms the body from the dust. 
Rather, he becomes so after God breathes into that material body the breath of life. There are two distinct entities here with man, the body and the breath. In Ecclesiastes, speaking of death, it says in chapter 12, verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then in Matthew 10, Jesus states, do not fear those who kill the body and, uh, yeah, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, if we were to understand Jesus' words here, the words body and soul to be referring to the exact same entity, his words would make no sense here. Clearly, a man possesses something that other men can kill, which Jesus here calls the body. But at the same time, man possesses something else that man cannot kill, which Jesus here calls the soul. Again, Raymond writes, Jesus clearly teaches that man's constituent parts are two, namely body and soul. This is the reason he could say to the dying thief, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul then states in 2 Corinthians 5, we know that, we, that if the earthly tent, that is the body we live in, is destroyed, we have a building from God, that is the resurrection body. We groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we were clothed, we, that is our souls, would not be found naked. As long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are home in the body or away from it. And then Philippians 1, verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so again, because of all this evidence, the Reformation creeds have all adopted this dichotomous view of man. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, why does it matter? Maybe we should just go along with the guy that says this is all fruitless and pointless. Well, it is a very big deal, and there's numerous applications here that we could get into with this, but I'll just give you one, and I think I've shared this before here, but think about mental health and how we uh, assess the problems of mental health and how we come up with solutions. When you have time, if you think about it, and you're at the house, go to YouTube, search for the words Carly Fleischman 2020. That's the name of the program, ABC News. You'll see a video there that's about 10 minutes long. It's probably one of my favorite videos on YouTube because it just, you know, it just sticks it to the, to the pagans. <laughs> But at the time of the interview, Carly was a teenager that doctors had diagnosed as having unspoken uh, extreme uh, autism or nonverbal extreme autism. She's what some would call, what we would have called in my teenage, you know, retarded, quote unquote. She doesn't speak. She grunts. She sits there and rocks and backs forth on her chair, making weird noises. They think that she has the mind of a two-year-old. Now keep in mind, this is the doctors that are coming up with this diagnosis, what their view of man is. Man's just material, nothing else. It's all material, it's all physical. Thought resides in the brain, originates in the brain. So they're scanning their brain and they see their brain doesn't look right, doesn't look normal. 
And then they're looking at her and her behavior and her inability to speak, her rocking back and forth, making weird noises. They think, well, her brain's underdeveloped, so her thinking is underdeveloped. And that's why she acts the way she does. Well, one day, Carly got a hold of the keyboard and started typing and typed a letter to her parents. And that letter reads like it came from a normal teenager with no problems whatsoever. Through typing, she was able to figure out a way to express what she hadn't been able to express before with her mouth and her speech. So the problem was not with her mind, as they supposed. She was perfectly normal in that respect. The problem was with her material side. The brain in particular is not able to outwardly express what was going on inwardly in normal ways that we usually do. Now all the experts, and this is what I love about video, they're all shocked. They, they have no idea what to make of any of this. And I'm certainly not claiming to be an expert on the relationship between the soul and the body. I mean, it, some of that just goes right over my head. But one thing it did make obvious to her parents that changed completely was they stopped, they, they had to stop talking to her as if she was a child and an idiot because she understood everything they were doing for years. And imagine being in her position. Mentally, you're, you're, you're normal, but everyone around you is talking to you like you're an idiot. I, I would get frustrated and rock back and forth and probably grunt too. <laughs> Think of how they would still be treating her today if she hadn't started typing her letters on the computer. Think of how much more advanced we would be in mental health if we would drop all these silly, stupid, materialistic assumptions. Beloved, we are not the enemies of science. They are. Those who reject the clear teachings of Scripture on creation and the make of a man, they're the real enemies. They're the ones that are stopping progress in these areas. Well, let me move on to my last point before I get worked up here. <clears throat> One last point I want to highlight here is the fact that man has made the image of God. You know, one of the interesting things you see in the creation account is this constant use of the phrase according to its kind or their kind. It occurs 10 times in reference to vegetation, the trees, uh, the sea creatures, the birds, the livestock, creeping things, and beasts. And yet when we get to the creation of man, the phrasing changes. Instead of saying according to their kind, Instead, we get in verse 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It seems to me that the pattern here is broken, and we have a clue here that man is now placed in a very special, unique position, different from everything else that was created. It is man alone who is made in our image after our likeness. So now the question is, well, how are we made in God's image? What exactly does this image refer to? Well, our confession locates it in the fact that man was, quote, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, true holiness, after his own image, end quote. And then as a result of being made in the image of God, man is then given some measure of sovereignty, some rule over the earth, dominion over the fish, the birds, the livestock, and every creeping thing. Man is now charged to subdue the earth. Man was not given dominion in order to make him in God's likeness, 
but rather he was given dominion because he was made in God's image and likeness. And where that likeness is primarily to be located in is in his original state of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Again, a lot could be said about this, but we just simply don't have time. My clock's already blinking right now. But just a couple of things to make about this point. One, this doctrine of the image of God, it balances out our thinking in that one, it shows that we are not God, which you would think you wouldn't have to say, but you got to say it which was the temptation for man in the beginning, to be like God. We are not God. Think about it. If we were made in his image, in his likeness, then that clearly indicates that we are not him. We are like him in some ways, but we're not him. Here, the creator-creature distinction is clearly being made, and we are to understand that unlike God, we are dependent, finite, and derived. And we are accountable to him, not him to us. And then two, we are, clearly, uh, we are clearly distinguished from all other creatures. So you see how it balances out. We can either have a too high exalted view of us, but then we can get too low. It does distinguish us from all other living creatures. We are not just a higher evolved form. We are not just regular old animals that happen to get an edge over all the other animals over time. We were specially created, given dominion over all the other creatures and must rule wisely and compassionately, and we will be judged by the Lord for all of our sins, including our abuses of the earth and its creatures. And by locating the image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, as unique creatures, we can now have a true knowledge of God that the other creatures cannot have. We have a responsibility and a duty toward our neighbor as understood in the virtue of righteousness, and we can relate to God in a way that nothing else can. Raymond writes, quote, God created man in his image, that is, with a creaturely but true knowledge of God, with justice toward his neighbor, which virtue was originally expressed in Adam's relation to Eve and vice versa, in piety, that is, covenant faithfulness toward God. But when Adam fell, though he still retained the image in the formal sense that man is still homo religiosus, the material image which he was to mirror by justice toward neighbor and covenant faithfulness toward God became terribly marred both in him and his posterity. The material image is principally restored only through salvation in Christ, the anti-typical and ideal image of God. And then so as Mark Ross concludes, and I'll end here, the whole of human ethics is grounded in the Imago Dei. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5. Fathers must discipline and instruct their children as the Lord does his children, Ephesians 6. The comforting love of a mother is the image and likeness of the comforting love of God, Isaiah 66. Earthly masters should reflect the justice and fairness found in the heavenly master, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. And though sin has greatly defaced God's image in us by God's grace in Christ, that image is renewed, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. Living by that grace, people see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5. And when our restoration is complete, we shall forever live in the presence of God, clothed with his glory, having truly become his, quote unquote, kind of people. Thanks be to God. And of course, that's the telos. That's the goal. We're right back to where we started. That, that is what's all being set up here in this account of creation. The coming of the antitype. 
the ideal image of God, the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made and is now remaking a kind of people for himself who will forever give glory to God in the manifestation of all his perfections and attributes. Well, we will end it there. Again, be praying for JP. He's been out of the loop for a little bit. But now he's going to make that transition now from the creation to providence and God's special care towards us as his handiwork.